perhaps the greatest trick pulled in in heist movie month is that brandon landed yet another steve's on performance <laughs> on this podcast hi and welcome to episode of nation my name is brand sparks and i'm thomas horton and here on Sin nation we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them and this month we are discussing a genre we discussed i think oh gosh years ago <laughs> on the show when we were doing our one genre per episode which at this point now you can go listen to those on, on apple podcast so you'll never know about this but anyway, <laughs> this month we are talking about uh the heist film genre it's a very uh it's a genre that's been around for a while and it's one of those genres that i feel like a lot of directors want to tackle at some point in their career so so thomas when you think about the heist genre like what what comes to mind what films come to mind what characters come to mind there's a lot of a lot of stuff out there yeah i mean i think it's a it's a very long and storied career uh you know mm -hmm. you've got some some really classic films uh like the killing and um, um it's completely slipping my mind what's the french the french film Oh, Rafifi. Rafifi, yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the original Ocean's Eleven. Um, yeah. And then you've got this kind of like, not not really postmodern, but, you know, a modern modern updating of it. And, and you know, it ran through the, the 80s and the 90s. But then I feel like it was really around the time of the movie we're going to be talking about today. And a couple of movies that followed after it kind of yeah. all wrapped up in also the 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 tarantino-ing of the film industry kind of bringing in the mm -hmm. like what if what if criminals were were fun uh yeah which i'm not saying tarantino invented that but he, he kind of brought fresh life to it and yeah. and so then that brought in this kind of new age of the heist movie um as well as you know a lot of a lot of other movies we're gonna be talking about this month i don't want to i don't want to uh dive too deep into some of our earlier ones yeah. but we're, we're covering a lot of the classics here uh especially the the kind of modern classics so so yeah i i, I generally think it you know it's kind of stylish no matter mm -hmm. what era you know oceans 11 obviously it was a very stylish film for its time the original it's a very yeah. like very much incorporates the the 60s um the oh the one in the 70s with christopher walken what's um Quincy Jones did the score for it. Oh, what was the name? The tapes. The is the Anderson tapes. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, Anderson tapes. Like very stylish music is like very 70s. It's very cool. Um, you know, and then obviously you get into the 90s. You get like Heat. You get Michael Mann. So mm -hmm. it's definitely that type of genre that you're you're able to just kind of revisit and people enjoy seeing different takes on it and you're able to update it mm -hmm. no matter what era you're in like it was kind of wild watching yeah. today's movie which came out in 1998 and yeah. and like just it feels like a 90s movie and then thinking yeah. about oceans 11 which came out three years later the 2001 oceans 11 and that feels mm -hmm. like a 2000s movie you know, and it's yeah. just three years that separates them, but the style has changed so much in between. Yeah, and we'll talk about it. <clears throat> that with Soderbergh, because Soderbergh's a guy where he definitely evolves with every like decade. It feels mm -hmm. like, and in some cases, he's the he's the catalyst for the evolution of certain things in Hollywood um, at that time. 
Uh, yeah, so the genre, you said it's been around for a while. I mean, it's like you go back to the early days of cinema with the Great Train Robbery. Mm-hmm. Like that's a that's one of the first movies. It's one of the first. It's what it's the first heist film, um, and that came out in 1903. Mm-hmm. And that was like talking about like the big thing about that was the how they inter- how they intercutted scenes. They went from uh, I think people say it's one of the first movies to actually show one thing happening. Um, that you're following a character and then you cut back to something that's going on at the same exact time. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of fresh. And so it's interesting looking at that and then drawing comparisons say today's movie uh, or even other heist movies, like the editing plays a key, uh, key part in a lot of these films. Yeah. I look at this movie with kind of the back and forth of timelines. I think of even, we'll talk about later in the month, the killing, which you mentioned um, does something very similar. Um, sometimes they play with time. Um, but yeah, I think with this high genre in the '90s specifically, a, a lot of times, like I feel like some, I think we talked about this at one point when we did the heist movie genre initially, about how like in times of like economic um, issues, there's mm. like a rise of heist movies. Yeah, well, I mean, we we've always been as a as as a culture, we've always been fascinated with the idea of like the noble robber, you know, Robin Hood. Yeah, Robin Hood the uh you know the the and wild wild gangster films gangsters yeah. wild west the bandits yeah, of the wild west we're always very interested in this idea of like the people who well because because robbing can be something we think of as a victimless crime you know we, we've never aren't the entire history of banks no one's ever had yeah. like a whole lot of sympathy for for the banks. Yeah, it's not your money; it's the bank's money. Exactly. So you know that's where you get you get these legends of people like Butch Cassidy, where it's like, yeah, these guys are are they, yeah they rob banks, but they're 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 not that bad. You know, they might kill they might <laughs> yeah. kill a few people to rob the banks, but yeah, they're not that bad. Uh, you yeah. know, even even piracy is 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 something similar. So we've always had this fascination with people who kind of take what they want and. Mm-hmm. So yeah, literally almost every kind of era, we've had some sort of anti-hero bandit mm-hmm. robber or something, and so now we've got all these different genres that you can create a, a heist movie within, really. Yeah, and when, and talking about say tropes uh, of this genre, and the anti-hero is probably the number one thing. Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's the people where like it, when you look at them, it's like it's I don't say robbers having fun, but it's like it's characters that you can somehow sympathize or empathize with mm. at some point. Yeah. There's, there's always going to be some sort of like honor among thieves type of thing that that's yeah. going to make our main character stand out. Like I, I really can't think of a, of a heist movie where, you know, the, the main character, you're like, wow, that guy's, that guy's a real piece of shit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. You understand them in some way, yeah. but like, I think, I mean, example, I don't, we're not really talking about any of his movies this month, but like a guy who I think we found out had appeared in the most heist movies was Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. And like Redford, as we talked about last week, uh, last month, uh, um, or in February, um, with Adrian Lyons, movie about indecent proposals, like Redford is so charismatic all the time. So even in like a evil role or whatever they're supposed to be, like you come out liking him most of the yeah. majority of the time. Yeah. Uh, and all the heist films, that's what he is. If it's Butch Cassidy, if it's sneakers, if it's the hot rock, if it's the old man, the gun, mm-hmm. like he's always this character where you're like always kind of on his side the entire time. 
I think one example, even, I mean, I'll bring up this one. It's like Point Break. Point Break's an interesting one where it's like Swayze is like, is the antagonist of the film. But like, you almost want to see Swayze get away from yeah. Keanu Reeves at the end of the movie. Yeah. Like, that, that movie so is as cool. much of a bromance <laughs> as it is a heist movie. It know? is. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's like you all, you always kind of like, you want a lot of the characters to get away. Mm-hmm. And, 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 th- and here's the thing too. That's what kind of, determines the tone of a heist movie is that if the characters get away it's more of like a caper Mm -hmm. if it's a heist film they mostly don't get away is kind of the thing it's like the like heist films can be done the tone wise is so it it really can go either way it can be fun and kind of lighthearted, like say oceans like say a hot rock even today this one might not be as light but it's a little bit more it's it's lighter but then you look at something like Asphalt Jungle or The Killing or Rafifi, uh, Dead Presidents. Those are like very serious mm-hmm. heist movies. And sometimes somewhat of a kind of morality tale in some way with with that. Or just showcasing a morality tale, but showcasing kind of a flaw in society at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Dead Presidents, I think, comes to mind with that a lot absolutely and so are there any other kind of tropes you see within this genre i think one is always like the last job like gotta do this one last job before i hang it up yeah yeah this which they they, they talk about in they in reference this movie. in this movie yeah. yeah it's like he's like hey have you ever met anyone that's done that yeah no and in, and in recent <laughs> years this is you know both tarantino and soderbergh really led to this but it it's become well, if you if you really want to know about heist tropes, there's a great Rick and Morty episode you can watch that's just about heist tropes. But one of the ones they 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 touch on is in is in recent years. You've kind of the way that Tarantino and Soderbergh play with time in their movies. The it's it's mm-hmm. become this this trope, and we'll see it a couple of times this this month. But the like now we're gonna flash back and show you how we did it, or like the plan's yeah. been in play yeah. the whole time, or something like that, where it's like. Yeah, the, the film misleads you as an audience into thinking, oh, something's gone wrong or something, and then it's like, no, now we're gonna go back and show you how this is all according to plan. So, so yeah. that that's something that that Soderbergh's played with really well. I think he does a great job with it in Ocean's Twelve because we, we've already kind of come to expect it because of Ocean's Eleven. So he takes it like three steps further in Ocean's Twelve, and uh, and you know, obviously Tarantino kind of played with time in Reservoir Dogs and and obviously Pulp Fiction, which isn't necessarily yeah. a nice movie but um that that's almost become in, in almost any kind of post soderbergh heist movie you have to have that like oh now i'm gonna take you back and yeah. show you how we did it well oh that kind of goes into the idea of like the subgenre of the con movie because mm-hmm. the con movie after oceans 11 is kind of blended together with with the heist movie because the con movie I, I was having this discussion with a few friends recently about this like how the heist movie is usually from the point of view of the person who is doing the robbery Mm -hmm. and a lot of the times the con movie is from the perspective of the person being conned yeah and so a lot of the time instead of oceans movies you're not fully but you're looking from the perspective of say andy garcia from terry benedict Mm. like you're you're following the person who's being conned because an audience member you're being conned as well and it's more like the filmmaker it's like, hey, were you smart enough to catch on that this was the plan the entire time? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's like it's very much it's a subgenre of of this film because they they after Ocean's Eleven after Soderbergh, they've kind of blended together 
because like, if you look at oceans 11 like they talk about like the cons they can play mm-hmm. in order to like inv- that's that's tied to the heist right and so that was like the bl- the blending of these kind of pretty closely tied genres but there's yeah there's always a sense of lying in it i mean because like, even with out of sight with here it's like there is somewhat of a con in the opening of the movie of just like hey you see that over there we're like this is my partner um which we'll get into that later mm. um but like it's it's a perfect intro to that to, to Clooney's character um so yeah it's like you you saw a rise <clears throat> which kind of goes with today a rise of heist movies in the 90s um it kind of happened because of Tarantino it's people usually look at Reservoir Dogs Usual Suspects and Heat mm-hmm. and we'll talk about Heat later on in the month when we talk about Michael Mann's uh filmography but then you kind of just see the rise of all these different kind of crime level movies and not just heist films um and out of sight is kind of smack dab in the middle of them coming at the end of the 90s but like i said we'll go into that more go more in the tropes um and themes of these films as we continue on the month when we talk about the various movies we're talking about so today we are discussing the 1998 film out of sight as we said directed by steven soderbergh and starring george clooney and jennifer lopez um, based on a 1996 novel written by the famed author Elmore Leonard. Um, Out of Sight is about a charismatic bank robber, Jack Foley, that is good at robbing banks, as Bonnie and Clyde would say in the 60s. Um, but as a streak, but he's on a streak of bad luck. Um, after being arrested for robbing a bank and not being able to start his car, uh, after robbing the Florida bank in broad daylight, Foley finds himself in prison. Luckily for him, there are some other inmates that are breaking out of prison, and he plans to piggyback off their plan. When Foley escapes and is being picked up by his partner in crime, Buddy, played by Ving Rhames, Foley kidnaps a federal marshal, Karen Sisko, played by Jennifer Lopez, to protect himself from her turning him in. Soon, a spark begins to fly between the criminal and the government agent, which leads to a compelling romance between Foley and Sisko uh, as Foley is trying to pull off a diamond heist of a rich banker he met in prison. Uh, besides Clooney Lopez and Rames, <clears throat> the film also stars Don Cheadle, Steve Zahn, Albert Brooks, Catherine Keener, Dennis Farina. One scene for the up and coming Viola Davis, if you noticed. Mm-hmm. I was, I forgot she was in this film. Uh, and the film also has two uncredited but important cameos from Michael Keaton and Samuel Jackson. The film was directed by Soderbergh and the script was, was adapted by Scott Frank. The film was produced by Danny DeVito's company, Jersey Films. And was released by Universal Pictures. A key player kind of involved in that was, uh, uh, I think, the CEO or chairman at the time, or someone who worked for Universal, uh, Casey Silver. Um, other key members of the crew to bring up as well. Uh, the film was edited by legendary uh, Annie Coates, who uh, edited such films as Lawrence of Arabia and uh, In the Line of Fire and several other a, a wide range of films from like the 50s onward into the 90s. Um, and this is kind of a little bit of a swan song uh for her so so thomas what is your history with out of sight um because i know you're you're a soderbergh guy yeah i definitely didn't see this one i saw oceans 11 first because i saw oceans 11 like my parents went to see oceans 11 in theaters and i was nine at the time and i remember them coming home and being like that movie was really good when it comes out on home video we'll let you watch it like it's it's pg-13 <laughs> but it's it's not you know aggressive um yeah and so oceans 11 was what really did it for me we had the dvd and i watched it like over and over and over again 
And then I definitely caught this one on TV at some point. And it was around the time yeah. I was starting to become aware of directors. But I was like mm -hmm. watching it. I was like, oh, this is kind of like Ocean's Eleven. And then like at the end, it was like Steven Soderbergh. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a it's guy. that guy. So I was probably like 12 or 13 at that point. Mm -hmm. And didn't revisit it for a very long time. Just kind of remembered liking it on TV. And then it started around like 2010, 2011, 2012. It really started getting a lot of like recognition. I think it got overshadowed by Ocean's Eleven for a while. Yeah. And then people started revisiting it. I, I rem remember it just would pop up on all these lists of like the sexiest yeah. movies of all time or like the best on-screen yeah. chemistry of all time. And everyone yeah. always writes about the, the trunk scene or the hotel room scene. And yeah. so I, I did revisit it in college. And then that's when I kind of started getting into like how this kind of intersects with the Tarantino verse and like the Elmore yeah. Leonard of it all. And it's, it's, it's super interesting. It's, it's yeah. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't even think about it until watching it this time, like for, for never having done a Tarantino movie, Clooney's really just kind of circled, you know, cause he, he's done. Yeah. He did from dust from dust till dawn yeah. was, was written by Tarantino, yeah. but not directed. And yeah. he's done, how, he's done at least one other Robert Rodriguez movie, right? How many spy kids movies is he in? I know he's in at oh, least he's, one. He's in, he, he's in several. Yeah, he is in several. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's um, so much. You know, it's just like looking back on it, it's like all these direct, all these hot up and coming indie indie to studio directors of the '90s are just like, oh yeah, all our movies are kind of like peppered, tied in together, and all this way. It's like you know, yeah, the MCU was just a twinkle in Kevin Feige's eye at this point. <laughs> they were creating a shit i i know i know if, if ben's listening i know he's he hates the idea of a tarantino cinematic universe but it's out there it's out there in the world yeah it, it is man it's very that was a big thing it's like you kind of found oh there's a shared universe within this like criminal like indie i'm not indie but a like, criminal crime movie genre or a, a universe or whatever um and it's all because of michael keaton essentially <laughs> um which is funny We'll, we'll talk more about that as we go into it. Um, uh, yeah, so I I didn't come to this movie really until I moved to L.A., surprisingly. It was one of those movies that had kind of uh, eluded me for a while uh, that I'd been mean, I'd been meaning to see uh, because I loved o the Oceans movies and kind of a lot of Soderbergh stuff. Because what I like about Soderbergh, and this is a whole other kind of conversation that, that I, don't, I, don't, I think we've had, I've had with other people too, of i haven't talked about on the show recently um it's like how Soderbergh is just this guy it's interesting kind of comparing the two Soderbergh and tarantino because they they have very different approaches to filmmaking absolutely tarantino wants to just make 10 movies or whatever when Soderbergh's like yeah give me anything and everything i want to try as much as i can yeah. um and i th i think because it came from a period right before out of sight where it was he he, he was trying to still figure out what to make and we'll go into that more but he he has a very different approach like I want to do everything and but they are closely tied because they're kind of considered the 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 faces of the rise of the American indie movement that went into the the basically became mainstream mm -hmm. um with sex lies and videotape and then uh Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction Soderbergh was more interesting because for a decade almost a decade after sex lies and videotape he was kind of doing nothing that really worked for mm -hmm. an audience's eyes um when tarantino was kind of creating a minting, a, minting money for most of the 90s yeah for most of the 90s and kind of essentially 
creating also like everyone was trying to find their Tarantino type movie um, and out of sight drew a lot of comparisons to that as we'll talk about. Um, so yeah, that was my kind of first time watching it was a few years ago. I think I read it from cinephile video shout out them as we've been doing these past few episodes um, and kind of watched that's what that way. And I was kind of uh, floored because I always seen like the big one. He said that the one that everyone talked about was the scene at the, at the bar that was intercut with them at the bar into the sex scene mm-hmm. and then the trunk scene. And I think they showed the, the, the bar scene uh, like in, in film school or whatever about how to, how to intercut and, and what you can do. Um, so yeah, I knew it from that. And then, then yeah, so it's it's always but but when I watched it, it really became top tier Soderbergh for me, and so this time, what were your kind of thoughts revisiting it? It's you know it's it's such I, I would love to sit down and do like a Soderbergh all the way through, but I realize it would take yeah so long. But there, yeah, it, it would it would take a few months if, if unless you watched one a day. Yeah. But there, there, there's there's so much like he's building towards Ocean's Eleven here, and it's yes. And I think of Ocean's Eleven as like a perfect Hollywood studio film, and this yeah. is very close. This is this is almost yeah. there, and not not that there's any like huge glaring mistakes, but he's he's just working out the kinks here. But but you yeah, know, it's just it's rough around the edges. The, the, is kind of the thing. The cast, obviously, um, you've got Don Cheadle here starting to kind of grasp his comedic potential but i'm um, still kind of playing like a like a villain but you've got you know that editing style the the, the freeze frames uh you've got the music very similar mm-hmm. kind of jazzy um backup music same, compose, same composer too yeah. david holmes and then you've just got this idea i i think the the different the real difference here between tarantino and soderbergh that that a lot of people can't grasp is like tarantino's whole thing is like what if what if criminals just talked about like nothing it's like the seinfeld of the <laughs> criminal world you know it's like yeah yeah they're they're not you know in this movie they're not talking about what you call a burger in france you know they're they're talking about everything yeah but but they're doing it so slick it's it, you know the the dialogue is so loaded but it's it's so charming and fun and so it, it is there, there's obviously visually very different from tarantino but um mm-hmm. But the the way that he approaches it too, because it's Elmore Leonard and and because it's playing with time and all that kind of stuff, I think it would be easy to look at the surface and be like, oh, this is a Tarantino knockoff. But but it's it's not. It's it's no very much doing its own thing with it, and mm-hmm. it, and it's much less concerned. You know, Tarantino's like the whole thing with Tarantino is that juxtaposition of like these guys are sitting around talking about nothing, and then like the violence is happening. And it's violence, yeah. and there's blood, and <laughs> and this is not concerned with that in any way. Yeah. There is some like comedic violence in this film, but it's not it's not nearly played up the way that that Tarantino plays it up. It's not meant to shock in any way more than yeah. to maybe kind of get a laugh out of you, and that's that's pretty rare in this movie too. I can think of maybe one or two instances. So so you know while you can maybe say like like funny criminals is is the through line between these these two indie directors in the in the 90s i i think they're it, it's more just elmore leonard and yeah. and two very different directors taking on elmore leonard in two different fashions yeah and two and yeah two people who were the kind of the faces of their era in a way it's like when you think of this specific era it's like 
you have people like Kevin Smith or whoever Rodriguez, but these two guys are pretty up there at the same time. And also it's so rare to see them tackling literally nine a year, but like six months apart, the uh, uh, material by Elmore Leonard mm-hmm. and the two, two adaptations. Like I said before, I think, or I think two of the most underrated works of both their respective filmographies, which I find interesting too. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. think both these films are. Um, so let's kind of dive into the history of how it's got to production, the history of this film, because okay. it's about, there's like two people at the core of this that we're, we're going to be following today. And so the year was 1997 and two men were at a crossroads in their creative careers. Director Steven Soderbergh, who, as we've said, has been credited with, by many with helping launch the American film, American indie film movement and the Sundance boom of the 1990s after the release of his debut film, Sex, Lies, and Videotape in 1989. Um, but he was needing a hit at this point in his career. After tremendous success critically and financially with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Soderbergh followed it up with three box office bombs, Kafka, King of the Hill, and The Underneath. In 96, he would go back and rediscover his roots by making two out-of-the-ordinary films, for, as for a Hollywood director at least, with uh, Schizopolis and Grey's Anatomy. But Soderbergh was looking for something more. Soderbergh said, I felt like I was at the end of my career four films in. I was really drifting into a place that wasn't very interesting. It wasn't very challenging. Once he finished these two experimental-like movies, Soderbergh realized he needed to make a hit if he wanted to keep directing. It had been nine years since Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and he was not living up to the financial potential that film had promised. Also around this time, popular television star George Clooney had just released the critical and financial disappointment known as Batman and Robin. (laughs) Clooney was starring in the hit NBC show ER, but Hollywood was hoping to make Clooney a movie star. He had starred in films like One Fine Day with Michelle Pfeiffer, The Peacemaker with Nicole Kidman, and From Dusk Till Dawn. But Batman Robin was seen as the venture that would lift. Uh, but Batman and Robin at the time was seen as the venture that would lift Clooney from the small screen to the big screen. However, the film failed, and Clooney soon realized that because he was the one that donned the cowl and the cape, the responsibility fell to him, not the people around him. He then began to really take a look at the scripts he was getting, hoping to find a vehicle that he could star in. Also, what's happening at this time is that in 1995, Get Shorty, a crime comedy starring John Travolta, <laughs> Rene Russo, Gene Hackman, Delroy Lindo, James Gandolfini, and Danny DeVito, was a big hit. The film, adaptation, the film adaptation was of an Elmore Leonard novel from 1990, and Leonard was a famous writer of crime and Western novels, and his work had gained rep- reputation for his sharp dialogue and well-developed characters. Now, Get Shorty was produced by Danny DeVito's company, Jersey Films, and it also had Michael Schamberg and Stacey Shear as producers. And well, and I know DeVito produced Pulp Fiction as well. Was that part of? Let's see, because someone under so, his wing. I know he's. I know he's credited as a producer on Pulp Fiction. Yeah, because he was kind of. I, I always. I, someone asked me that recently. I need to look that up. Um, Jersey Films. Yeah, because Jersey Films is his company. And that is a production company on Pulp Fiction. I mean, mm-hmm. he, for a while, like the movies he was kind of involved in, people don't realize how much uh, DeVito was in with kind of shepherding those movies early on. Pulp Fiction, he's also a producer on Get Sh- or, uh, Aaron Brockovich, wow. another one, uh, mm-hmm. which well, he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture that year. Uh, Gattaca, <laughs> um, Garden State, and Man on the wow. Moon are kind of the big ones. 
Um, so yeah, he people don't realize how much he's been kind of involved with shepherding some of these things. So, uh, so he a uh, camp your favorite movie. Um, <laughs> uh, so again, Shorty was a big hit with critics and at the box office, grossing 115 million dollars on a 30 million dollar budget. Now, DeVito and his team want to recreate the success of Get Shorty, so they purchased Leonard's next novel, Out of Sight, which was released in 1996. So very quickly, this movie was turned in, this this book was turned into a film. Uh, most of the production team uh, from Get Shorty planned to reunite. DeVito and his team with producing screenwriter Scott Frank returned to adapt the script, and director Barry Sonnenfeld planned to direct it again. Uh, mm-hmm. In 2013, in a talk with creative screenwriting, Scott Frank said one of the main reasons he took the job was because he had a wife and three kids and they were living in a two-bedroom place in Los Feliz and he needed to buy a bigger house. <laughs> uh, he said it was some of a joke when he said at the time, but he initially, he realized there was some truth to it um, because he was not keen at writing another linear adaptation because he thought Get Shorty was so incredibly difficult. But when he read the novel for Out of Sight, he decided to do it because he loved it, and he thought, this will take less time and be way easier than adapting Get Shorty. Uh, he later admitted he was completely wrong, uh, and it was just as hard, if not harder. Somehow the script got to Clooney, and within the first few pages, he realized he needed to be in this film. Uh, he quickly became attached to the film because he saw the character as Jack Foley as a bank robber that you want to see get away with it. He said that he, it harkened back to the old days of crime films like Jimmy Cagney and Humphrey Bogart that starred in them, and those are the films he kind of wanted to, to emulate. Um, but before Clooney was attached to it, director Barry Sonnenfeld dropped out of the project to direct Men in Black. Uh, wow, that's it's, it's uh, the late 90s are such an interesting yeah. period for like me because it's like, I saw Men in Black when it came yeah, out. So did I. I didn't see Out of Sight for like years later. <laughs> for two I mean, it's, it's hard to place all those movies yeah. around that time. So he was supposed to do Men in Black before Get Shorty. Uh, but somehow Get Shorty came first and it was going to be Men in Black next. And now he's making Men in Black and he's out of out of sight. Um, the production team soon began searching for a director. Some names that were tossed around for this. Mike Newell, who had directed Four Weddings and a Funeral, uh, was offered the role, but turned mm-hmm. it down because he thought it was too similar to his recent film, Donnie Brasco. Um, I don't know. Crime? Uh, That's what uh, it otherwise. is. It's a crime. That's It's interesting hearing directors talk about this. Like, it's like, oh, it's a crime film. I've done a crime film. Don't even know. It's like, oh, I've done a horror film. It's like, but they're all they're all different in tone. But for some people, it's just like I read crime, and that's yeah. I just did a crime movie. I've only seen Donnie Brasco once, but I don't remember a whole lot of laughs. No, there's one. not. <laughs> it's good. Donnie Brasco is actually a really, really good film that I think isn't talked about enough. But uh, but yeah, there's no there's no connection. That's like a mob movie, uh, with not a lot of laughs. Great, but also a ca- like a good cast from top to bottom, like a Paul Giamatti is mm-hmm. a small part in it. Like it's really good. Um, so he turns it down. Cameron Crowe turns it down. Allegedly from what I've read, um, directors, Ted Demi and Sidney Pollack met with the producers, but nothing came of it. Hmm. Uh, George Clooney said in 2020, when promoting his next movie, midnight sky, he said that one director either dropped out of the project or refused to do it because Clooney was attached to it. And the director said, He's only a television star. Why do we have him in this film? <laughs> Not long after this, uh, Casey Silver of Universal Pictures went to Steven Soderbergh and asked him to direct the movie. Silver kind of believed that putting Soderbergh and Clooney together, two people that are on the downward 
spiral in a way we're on a slide he thought both of them could kind of it could, this could prop them both up um mm-hmm. silver had worked with soderbergh previously on king of the hill and the underneath both of which failed financially um fun fact casey silver got his start in the film industry as a production assistant on adrian lyons foxes hey, and wow. then served as lyons assistant on Flashdance. But Soderbergh was hesitant to take the movie because he was working on other projects. Silver told him that opportunities like this do not come around often. And he said, if you don't do this movie, it means you don't want to direct movies. This is so up your alley. You have to do this. (laughs) Um, Soderbergh realized that Silver was right, and he decided to direct the film. Um, They would soon land Clooney's co-star in the film, Jennifer Lopez, after she auditioned for the role of Karen Sisko. Uh, Lopez was just coming off her breakout role in Selena, which was released in 1997. So she's right in the middle of like becoming pretty much a star. So now with the co-star, uh, Out of Sight was moving forward. And only 18 months since DeVito bought up the rights to the book, uh, the film was going into production. And as the film was ramping up, Clooney and Soderbergh understood that the film could be their possible last chance at making it on a larger scale in Hollywood. Oh, man. Which is insane no to think about. <laughs> I love yeah, how yeah. A, with a lot of these movies we do, it's like, yeah, we didn't know if we were going to make another movie after this film because we've been doing so poorly. And that leads to this. So, yeah. so Thomas, what is one of your favorite scenes in this movie? Um, I mean, I think obviously the trunk scene is iconic. Yeah. Uh, and just the the chemistry between the two is just kind of off the charts Mm -hmm. but i love i I think to start off i think you just have to talk about that first scene because first scene's amazing i can't imagine going into this movie not knowing if george clooney is a movie star yeah and by that first like the feeling it must you must have like "Ah, i'll go see like i didn't like batman (laughs) he's that guy from er but like i'll go see this movie and like by the first five minutes you're like oh okay yeah i get it yeah i get it now He's everything that is George Clooney is in that first scene. It, yeah. The the charm, the the comedic timing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a much larger debate with, you know, the whole thing. Everybody always says Brad Pitt is a character actor in a leading man's body. And, and Clooney does have the comedic timing of a character actor sometimes. But I don't know, not maybe not quite as wacky as Pitt can get sometimes, but I still love like, you know, when and that that's the that's the beauty of of many of Clooney's performances, especially with the Coens. But I think Soderbergh was the first one to really tap into that. It's like he is this guy who looks so suave and so put together, but he's so good at like imploding or or just, you know, messing up one little thing, slipping up once. And you're just like, oh, no, that guy's you know he's a nutcase i mean it's it's a great juxtaposition of like the opening shot is like literally him walking out of some building like throwing his tie on the ground and like just like so upset and it's like freeze frame and then it's him going to a bank being suave as hell mm-hmm. and the next thing is him he can't start his car like it's yeah, just like, like it's, it's fantastic you know, he's in this suit he goes into the bank he knows exactly what he's doing he doesn't miss a beat you're like wow this guy's got it down and then he gets out to his like terrible pinto or whatever that is that he's driving you know and you're just like oh wait well I, maybe i don't get what's going on with this guy he's like i think you, the cops like i think you flooded it yeah yeah i did um what's like and i think it's when he's robbing the bank it's like it's just a great like it's it's so early danny ocean 
is mm-hmm. the thing. That's what's yeah. what's so crazy. Watch this movie. You're like, oh, this is Ocean's Eleven at its infant stage is what it feels like. Because like he's coming up, it's very much like he's talking to the the bank teller. He's like, you ever been robbed before? It's okay. Don't worry. It's gonna be fine. Like, uh, yeah, just make sure you do this. Like, my friend won't go shoot your manager in the head over there. It's totally good. Like, it's just like he goes, mm-hmm. yeah. He goes, you have a. He's like, just smile. Just make sure it's okay. You have a pretty smile. It's like it's very much like. Um, yeah. Was it first time? First yeah, time. Yeah, first getting... time. First time robbed. Yeah. Like it's very much like Redford and Old Man the Gun in a way. It reminds me of. It's like, it's the like this nice thief in a way <laughs> where like because he's kind of so cool you kind of like eh, oh well and then it's like he walks over and like see the, the guy that he's like talking to is like oh, she seems cute right and it's like i it's like he's almost like trying to set them up in a weird way it kind of feels mm-hmm. like like yeah i think it's i think it's gr- great opening for that character just fantastic opening it's your first time being around Doing great. Just smile, Loretta, so you don't look like you're being held up. You got a very pretty smile. The 20s, give me the 20s. I'll take those. There you go. Put those in my pocket. There you go. I had to give my partner a sign. That's good. Now he's going to wait 30 seconds until I'm out of the building. Make sure you haven't set off the alarm. If you have, he's going to shoot you, Mr. Gwen, in between the eyes. Okay. I think that'll do it, Loretta. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. With these movies, with these heist films, there's always these like weird interplays with our relationships with the characters that we're just not privy to of like how mm-hmm. things go down. It's like yeah. at the beginning, it's like you don't like I don't know Clooney's relationship with Luis Guzman in this movie. Yeah. But somehow they have a, a some sort of relationship in some way. Yeah. Well, and, and you know the, that's that's the beauty of like the the way that this film plays with time yeah. is is really good. I think it was in Roger Ebert's review where it's just like you won't you don't even realize that he is playing with time. Like there's so many there's so many movies that do play with time and just like from the start you're like, okay, what's going on? I'm lost. And you don't even know in this movie that you don't know everything you need yeah. to know yeah. <laughs> until, until Soderbergh later. wants you to know yeah. that you don't know everything you need to know. Um, and so you get and, and it pays off from a storytelling point of view, but it also pays off comedically, you know, mm-hmm. like you get you get uh, kind of that, that phone conversation with uh, is it Adele. Is... Yeah. Catherine Keener's character. Yeah. 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 Catherine Keener's character where she kind of mentions Steve Zahn's character. Yeah. And Clooney's just like, oh, I'm going to if gonna... I see that guy, I'm going to break his damn sunglasses. I yeah, swear I'm to gonna God. break his sunglasses <laughs> while they're still on his head. I do have to mention that perhaps the greatest trick pulled in, in heist movie month is that Brandon landed yet another Steve Zahn performance <laughs> on this podcast. How many is that? There's been several, it feels like. There's been several. At least three, I can count. <laughs> hey, guys. Don't worry. Ne- next month, we're doing Riding Cars with Boys. That's what we'll do. <laughs> what we'll do. But yeah, and that, that first scene, you know, talk about the, the trunk scene, obviously. The way, the way yeah. it's shot. And, and it is an interesting follow up to our um, Adrian Lyon month because it is like focused. There's these great little cutaways to like his hand on her hips and, yeah. and you know, her like shuffling a little bit. And it's and it's not it's it's not, you know, it's not it doesn't feel well, gross. Yeah. You know, it, it even it's, though he's covered in like sewer water. Yeah. Um, it's the way it's done feels very tasteful. Yeah. Taste. I feel, I always feel like tasteful is like a not tasteful word to use, <laughs> but um, 
it the the chemistry is is so there and like yeah. the dialogue and their performances so when you do get a little shot of like his hand brushing on her you're like you're like okay okay all right and yeah. the score obviously you know works super well with everything too yeah i mean it's like i, I wrote down my notes when that scene comes up and as they're like talking it's i'm like this is one sexy movie like the way he shoots it's just like it's just the editing it's it's annie coates like editing style that she does with like it's almost like the it's the time passing mm. dissolves over it and you're you're kind of hearing them talk and yeah. first they're like kind of ups, like they're kind of bickering and then just starts talking about movies and it's kind of it's kind of because of like Clooney's stupidity in the moment it's like because she's like you think you're still mm. a real clyde barrow and it's just a silence he goes I mean, like Bonnie and Clyde. And she's like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from, the, from the movie, right? With, uh, with, uh, Faye with Dunaway. Oh, yeah, and Faye Dunaway. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's like, yeah. He's like, what was that one she did? The one, the TV one? I, I like that one. The TV one's like, Network. Yeah, yeah, that one. And I'm just like, that's where you like, is this Tarantino? Is what it kind of feels like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. And then he's got that great, that great, like, he quotes the line from Network and he gets it wrong. Pardon the movie where they get shot when it's uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. I like her in that movie about TV. Network, yeah, yeah. she was good. Yeah. That guy who says he's not going to take any more shit from anybody. Peter Finch. Yeah, Peter Finch. Not gonna take any, uh, uh, mad as hell, and I'm not going to take any more of your shit. I mean, that part where they get shot, I remember thinking to myself, thinking, that would be such a bad way to go if you had to. This movie has a very, like, 90s cast overall, as we talked about. Like, it's, I mean, it's them in it. But like you got Ving Rhames in it, like it feels like kind of like not. It's not long after Mission Impossible. Got to shout out, uh, casting director Francine Maisler, who is doing a fantastic job right now. She's the casting director on Winning Time. On uh, oh, is she really? HBO, yeah. She's that she's, makes so much she, sense. She works now. with Adam McKay a lot now. She does yeah. Succession as well. And and Winning Time cast is just like amazing. Mm-hmm. It's like stacked um just like this cast is like so we I mean, you can go you can go through this movie and like just say like okay like everyone's best scene like everyone mm-hmm. kind of ha- like i, I like the, the ving rames character i love that it hits like he has this like relationship with his sister who's like very christian <laughs> and like he ha- every time he does something wrong he has to call her up it's like at that one point when like he has like a is a prostitute or has someone over and he's like, yeah, she was there for 45 minutes. And Clint's like, how long did you talk to your sister? About two hours. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, what is this? And then and it's the great line at the end when Clooney's going back into the house and Ving Rhames wants to go back in. He's like, no, 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 whatever. Like, he goes, if you go back in, you'll be talking to your sister for a month on the phone about what you're about to see, what's going to happen in there. Like, it's just a kind of a great little character thing about, about mm-hmm. Ving Rhames' character. Let's talk, talk about the playing with time. It's like, well, I like to... So you have the breakout scene in the, in, in the prison's great when he, he comes up and he, again, it's the con. It's like this very, da- very, very Ocean's Eleven thing where he comes out like pretending to be a, pol- uh, 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 like a parole or a, a, a corrections officer or whatever. And he's yeah. pretending he's like, like oh I'm a guard. yeah, I'm a, guard. I'm a guard, I'm a guard here. Like, yeah. And that's how he gets out. But I love where it's, that happens. And then when, when Karen Cisco, Jeff Lopez and Steve's Don like drive away and leave them, it cuts to them in prison and you think like, oh, this is the the next scene after this happens. Like they've been mm-hmm. caught and we're jumping time. And then you soon realize a little bit later that, oh, no, this is a flashback. And we just somehow went in this flashback to establish all the exposition you're going to know. But because of the way it's placed, it feels like you're moving forward in a way. 
Does that mm -hmm. make sense? It's like just it's it's a, like it's in the structure that we're talking about, the pace of it, the way as you said, Soderbergh reveals information to us is very purposeful the entire yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. Because like you really don't know that the whole thing they're planning is to rob Albert Brooks. And you really don't know until much later of why they're going to do it. Like initially, it's just kind of like a fun thing. Like it's like, well, we're going to do it. Like we're talking about in the prison, but it's not going to happen. But then it's the reveal that the reason why Clooney does it is because he feels betrayed by Albert Brooks's character, uh, mm -hmm. Ripley, when he finds out he's going to get like a security guard job when he was promised a higher paying job at the guy's company. And then it's right. like, oh, this is why he's been doing this the entire time. I do love just Michael Keaton's one scene with as Ray Nicolette from mm -hmm. from Jackie Brown. What, what, what really solidifies the the nineties cinematic indie universe. director verse, yeah. cinematic universe, yeah. Where it's like the character for those that know, and I think I'll say a little bit later, but like Keaton's character uh, Ray Nicolette is in Jackie Brown, which was done by Quentin Tarantino, which was released six months before, and because uh one company owned the rights to jackie brown one company owned the rights to to out of sight it was kind of a big deal that like keaton is playing the same character in two movies essentially establishing mm -hmm. this connection that like oh cool clooney's jack foley is in the same world as robert forrester and pam greer and it's just kind of a little it's a fun thing to see pre cinematic universe like mcu or whatever like it's always fun to me seeing like how movies are connected so it's like the john hughes stuff or whatever of his kind of uh Shermer, illinois things was like how you can make the connections early on and it's not just marvel easter eggs of who the next superhero is going to be um but no yeah keaton and dennis dennis farina where dennis is like just telling the story about like <laughs> basically like he's telling this long-winded story of like this news story and then it like ends with like, oh yeah, because they cheated or his the husband cheated on the wife. And it's for him to kind of make a comment because Keaton is cheating on his wife with Jennifer Lopez is what it is. Mm -hmm. And then Keaton kind of realized it, like, oh, okay. But I love I love just the rant that like, Keaton is wearing like an FBI shirt. Like yeah, that's like, like you ever you ever wear an undercover shirt? He's like, no. <laughs> and it's but yeah, it's a great it's just a great scene. It's like he just pops up very briefly. He has a much bigger role in Jackie Brown. But just is like there uh in the moment uh what's another scene that you like in this movie i mean i, I hate to say it but you know both both of the steve zahn specifically the steve zahn jennifer lopez scenes i think steve zahn's got great chemistry with don Cheadle, but especially the two yeah. j-lo scenes when she kind of talks him into leaving clooney on the highway yeah and then he like kind of talks himself out of it and then i that's really love the the scene in detroit where yeah. they run back into each other and he's he's just like trying to get away from from snoop yeah <laughs> and, he, and uh he's just like oh, you know I, I hate to I, I i hate to give it to him but it's, zon's great in this it's a great <laughs> great zon role why do you hate to give it to him <laughs> <laughs> i don't know I, I feel like i have to ground you sometimes right. um, that's that's fair that's fair but but the, the two of them together are, are really fun in, in those scenes. It's like he has the line, he's just like, you know, if I never would have met you, I would <laughs> You've never driven me to the court. court man. If you never driven me to the court, man, I wouldn't be here. She's like, if I didn't drive you to the court, you wouldn't be alive right now. And it's just like <laughs> gets a running. Um yeah, no, it's 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 fantastic. Um so those yeah, those scenes are great. Um so let's talk about Don Cheadle in this movie. 
Because how do you feel about Don Cheadle in this film? I mean, I, I feel like he's not he's not really reaching his potential. Yeah. His Soderbergh potential. Yeah. Snoop Snoop's not quite as quick with the comebacks yeah. as as Don Cheadle can be. Yeah. But but he's he's having a good time with it for yeah. sure. I, it, I especially love him during the break in when he's like trying on the suits and Isaiah Washington's yeah. like trying to pick out some music. Yeah. Just like what are these guys even doing here? Yeah. He's like, What who's Michael Bolton? Or whatever is what he <laughs> says. Uh no, Cheadle's yeah, it's Cheadle's not fully like uh his character in devil devil in a blue dress where he's like electric mm-hmm. but i don't know if he's supposed to be electric as snoopy and he like snoop here like i, I think it's just kinda, it's it's again it's like this kind of quirky criminal where like he's it's like he's known for like throwing fights is what it is mm-hmm. like he goes from being mad dog miller to uh snoopy miller because he yeah. if he gets touched he falls down um <laughs> Yeah, and he's you know he's he's definitely like a Soderbergh villain. Like he's yeah. he's he's not he's not like all like blind rage or violence that's kind of saved for Isaiah Washington's character. Like yeah. he's he's really smart, mm-hmm. but he is also scary. Yeah, and and can be you know we're we're introduced to him with that shanking scene. We're we're yeah. just like okay, this guy knows how to make his money. He knows how to take a fall for cash, mm-hmm. but his pride's not going to let that go. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, great intros to these characters. It's like you said, with the Cheetah, like I said, it's like you see, the first thing you see is Clooney explaining how he's, like, soft and, like, how how Snoop plays a soft guy because he, he throws fights and gets money. But then all of a sudden, the next scene is him stabbing the dude that beat him mm-hmm. in the boxing ring. You're just like, wait, who is this guy? This dude's kind of insane. Like, but he's not, like, a physical force in a way. He's just mm-hmm. kind of insane is is the thing to love when he's trying. They're trying to rob the trying to shoot up the safe in, in Albert <laughs> Brooks's house. And they're just like, no, no, no. Angle, angle, angle. No, no, no. It's going to come back and hit you. And they're just like shooting it. And then Nancy Allen's just like the combination is his birthday. Yeah. And they're yeah. like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and there's like nothing in there. Um, so let's talk about a scene that is probably I think that I mean, the trunk scenes iconic. But I think the most iconic one, at least it was the one that has been shown to me multiple times in classes or whatever. It's the hotel bar scene slash hotel room scene between Jack and Karen, because mm-hmm. it's a scene that Soderbergh talked about. And I might mention later Soderbergh talked about how like they gained inspiration from uh, Don't Look Now. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now with the sex scene between uh, Sutherland and uh, Julie Christie. And that's very much apparent when you watch this, because essentially for those that haven't seen it or need a little refresher, it's that Jack and Karen, pretty late in the movie, she's been chasing him because she's he's escaped her and she's trying to get him back in jail. But there's this attraction to like that they both have for one another and they both know it. And they make a comment early on, like, I wish I could just like go back and like go meet you at a bar, ask to get a drink for you and like that we don't have those kind of connections. And that's mm-hmm. such a kind of like what they do. And they try to pretend like they're two other people. And then they can't can't do that charade for a while. They just kind of break down. But as the scene's progressing, it's intercutting between them at the bar, starting the flirtations to them up in the hotel, realizing there's something like they're, they're about to have sex and it's just building Mm -hmm. and building until basically the, the ending or the climax of both scenes is intercut at the same time. It's just the tension, the the the, the tension is building, or the the mo- momentum is building, 
yeah. as the movie as as the scene goes forward yeah but that it, it absolutely ties back to like i was saying earlier with the trunk scene is the way that that scene is cut just shows you that 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 soderbergh you know the film mm-hmm. thinks that their their dialogue the conversation the level of conversation these two people is on the level of connection they're on yeah is like just as sexy yeah as as the physicality yeah. between them because we we're just constantly going back and forth between them undressing yeah. to what they're talking about at the bar yeah and it's like this is this is on the same level yeah they're addressing with their words in a way of how they're talking yeah. about it and the way he shoots too because if you watch it, it's like the way he shoots it, you have the over the shoulder shots where you're seeing like just the solos or whatever singles of them um but then you have the that two shot and the way he shoots it with the lens or whatever they're so close together like you know they're not that close in the actual scene because the way he shoots mm-hmm. it with the over the shoulders but when it's that two shot they're almost like six inches away, like face to face. And like, they're just like, and it's just this so intimate moment between these two people. And then you have the intercut of the kind of slowly, like up in the room, like taking the drink, but it's the touch. I think that I think the first cut is when he touched, they touch those hands uh, at the bar and then it cuts them in the hotel room mm-hmm. and it just goes back and forth. Um, but, but it also has this like, weird fantastical element to it with the with the heavy snow outside oh, yeah. the wind it's gorgeous and like, it's, it's lit, so gorgeous uh, you know, classic soderberg it's lit so warm inside yeah. the room yeah and then it, it just looks like so cold outside the room but uh <laughs> yeah it's great it's 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 so so well done yeah. and like we we're saying with the editing with the freeze frames and kind yeah. of the speed up and the and the, the jumps mm-hmm. you know he's 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 really close to that kind of like oceans like even you know the style that would get like yeah really really kind of over the top in traffic but yeah. uh but yeah it's yeah it's all like, i think the same that's thing that remind me of oceans it's like it's the scene outside the car when him and ving rings are top ving rings and him are talking and it's like the camera's outside the car so you see like the reflection of the trees on the window and everything it's just it's it's great and and the high scene's great the high scene, the, the semi high scene at the house. That's the thing about this movie. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting for heist month is that like, there's not really a big heist in this movie, but it has all the elements of a heist film. It feels like it's like you have mm-hmm. the, the stakeout, you have the kind of the character interplays or like the, the, the kind of heist team, like getting the team together, the kind of tension between the team, the kind of cop, someone, be, someone chasing after like, it has all the elements of a heist, but it's not like, okay, here's, hour of of a heist or whatever it's like they're robbing a house basically but Mm -hmm. they're doing it on a much bigger level than what they like what the movie is like pitching it as in a way um but yeah it very much is this test run and very much he's soderbergh and Clooney are both finding their footing in this movie and it's kind of a wonder to see yeah i'd be interested in what i mean you know it was always like like it's not like it's Clooney's first movie you know yeah he he was an actor but there there is something different between from dust till dawn to this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. something clicked in between mm-hmm. and there's between you know that mastercard never leave home without it or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is, is there's something he 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 found his his comfort zone and yeah. i want to say comfort zone like i like he plays the same character every time because he doesn't i think he's very very versatile actor but but he he found he tapped into whatever within him was able to just kind of let the charm 
yeah. who's out. <laughs> I mean, in a way you can compare. I'm not saying they're the same type actor, saying who's better, who's worse, but like it reminds me a little bit of Cary Grant when Cary Grant's trying to find his footing in the 30s and the 40, 30s, basically. Mm-hmm. And and like they don't know what to do with Cary Grant yet. They just mm-hmm. don't know. And, and, and you needed some of those screwball comedies yeah. to be like wow this guy's really handsome and yeah. he can play suave yeah but he can also play goofy and and he truly deserves to be like somewhere in the middle of that is where he really needs to land and basically it, t- it took a director i think it was leo mccrary that took a director to like kind of like bring that out of grant that then became his thing for for a good chunk of time like it's kind of what he became known for how'd you find me your room from downstairs yeah. <laughs> and if i had answered what were you gonna say i would say who i was and do you remember me and if you'd want to meet for a drink if i remembered you i came here looking for you all right so then i would have said yes but for all you know i could have had a swat team waiting for you why would you trust me it'd be worth the risk you like taking risks so do you You know, sooner or later, you really wear that suit. Well, it's not what you were about to say. Remember how talkative you were in the trunk? Mm-hmm. Adele said you do that when you're nervous. Oh, she did, did she? You kept touching me, feeling my thigh. Well, in a nice way. So moving on, onset life. So production began on October 1st, 1997, and I believe from what I could tell, one of the first scenes that was shot, or the first thing that was shot, was Catherine Keener's phone call scene with Clooney uh, when Ooh. he was in prison. So her, it was her section of it, not Clooney's section of it, when she's shooting in, in the house. Keener said, it was the first day on set, and all the studio bigwigs showed up to watch the kickoff shot. It was a scene with me by myself, and there's <laughs> me all alone, with screaming with people screaming instructions and shit so i just had to scream inside uh it seems like everyone realized that soderbergh Clooney, and lopez were electric together when working on the set uh it seems producers mean devito and his jersey films producers admired soderbergh's energy and discipline to his work on the film they said soderbergh would almost never leave the camera during lunch planning out his setups and also talking with the crew throughout the entire day uh, or any of these entire breaks um, but Soderbergh still had some low moments on set. One he describes was when they were shooting in Detroit and it was snowing hard. And he said it looked great for the film, but he was depleted for some reason. He said when they broke for lunch, he didn't go with the crew. And he just stayed back and sat near the deserted road they were shooting on by the crafty table where all the snacks were. Um, and all of a sudden, a deer walked up to him in the snow. This very majestic type thing. I don't know how it happened. Isn't that from uh, Three Billboards? Isn't three billboards? Yeah. <laughs> and just stared at him. Soderbergh got like four apples, fed them to the deer one by one, and that somehow calmed him. And when the deer left, he was like, okay, let me get keep going and make this thing work. Um, when it came to the trunk scene, uh, the trunk scene was shot 45 times. Wow. However, none of these takes were used in the final cut. What? Because the test audience, because what, what what I forgot to say, was that he wanted to shoot that scene in a long single take. And the mm. test audiences didn't like it. Apparently, it was, so they had to reshoot that scene um, later. I can they, see that. I think the original take is online somewhere, or was in the DVD extras, at least. Um, last thing. So, uh, Lancaster, California's uh, detention center was the stand-in for, uh, um, for um, 
uh, Lompoc and uh, Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola were used as the Glades Correctional Facility in Florida. But uh, when the scene when they're playing basketball in Angola uh, for the Gla- the Glade sequence, uh, people apparently some of the inmates were yelling at Clooney, saying, "What's wrong? Batman can't fly to the top of the hoop." Uh, <laughs> when Clooney was forced to play poorly during the basketball scene. Uh, uh, so filming within rap on January 12th, 1998. And that takes us into the aftermath of the film, which this is where the movie, this is where it all gets interesting. Okay. After the filming wrapped in that January, January of 1998, Soderbergh's editor, Annie E. Coates began working on the film in post-production. Um, when tackling the sex scene between Lopez and Clooney, as I said, they, they took inspiration from Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Up. I've also, Don't Look Now, um, Don't Look Up mm-hmm. movie, Don't Look Now. Uh, <laughs> I've also heard from other sources, I don't know where, I feel like this was at film school or something, that they initially cut the scene straight, like they didn't intercut it, and it wasn't planned, and they kind of discovered that in the, in the editing room, is what it was. Okay. Um, according, this is where it's fun, according to Peter Bark's book, uh, Peter Bart's book, The Gross, The Hits, The Flops, The Summer That Ate Hollywood. It was in the editing process when the production team got word from Universal that they loved the film so much they were going to open it on July 4th weekend, making it Universal's oh prime, prime summer movie. Producer Dan DeVito and his team were, were at first happy and then very upset because they soon realized they believed this was a, or they soon believed this was a trap since they were rushing a release. <laughs> Uh, they thought it. Sh- I mean, you, you know, uh, an R-rated crime caper isn't isn't necessarily a summer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, billboard drop. So yeah, interesting. They, be- they believed they believed they were rushing, it, and they believed it should have been a fall release because that's when Get Shorty was released because the competition isn't as fierce. And they're like, why are we doing? We're just, like the whole idea was to recreate the success of Get Shorty. Why are we all of a sudden now pivoting? Mm-hmm. And the movie was going to open up against, not the same day, but like a few days, like basically the week before 4th July, open up against Michael Bay's Armageddon. Wow. Uh, uh, it seems that one of the main reasons why Out of Sight was opening at this time was because Meet Joe Black, one of Universal's big projects of the year, projects of the year was not ready to be released for the summer. Oh, poor, poor Brad Pitt was out there begging for Soderbergh to, to discover him, too. <laughs> So Meet Joe Black's pushed to December and our site is pushed uh, as pulled as pushed up. So the entire marketing for the film was rushed. Uh, it was said in Peter Bart's book that there was no master plan for the film's marketing and that it was all improvised as they went along. No meetings were set with publicity department to plan media strategy. So because of all that, the entertainment magazines killed several cover stories regarding the film because, and I quote, there's no buzz on your film is what one magazine told universal about out of sight while other tentpole trailers were being released with other tentpole films this summer a 30 second spot was mainly showed before the box office failure basketball oh man when zorro which was coming out in the summer was being pushed before godzilla earlier on in the year when scott frank writer scott frank went to a movie in may of 1998 he saw the trailer and right when it finished the woman behind him quickly said rental about out of sight uh actor steve zahn also said that he believes the post or the, the, the poster of the movie didn't help because it may the original poster made like it was a try a love triangle murder mystery and not a Excuse slick me? yeah 
All right, hold up. I've got to. I got to <laughs> Google this. Out of sight original poster. I don't. I don't even. I can't picture that in my head. It's not the red one. That's the one that looks more like probably. Yeah, a that one's dope. It's that the, one looks more like a Tarantino movie. It's the other one that's just a gun. Oh, and their two faces kind of disembodied. Yeah. Yeah. No, that one's that one's no fun. And it's out of sight. Opposites attract. Like it Oof. just it feels weird. So yeah. So basically, it doesn't look good for this movie. Uh, the film would eventually open on June twenty second or June twenty sixth, nineteen ninety eight, making only twelve million dollars in its opening weekend. And then on July fourth, it made only six point five million dollars. And finishing, coincidentally enough, in fourth place, 4th July, uh, behind Armageddon, Dr. Doolittle, and Mulan. Oh, God. The Eddie Murphy Dr. Doolittle? Yes. Wow. Eddie Murphy had two, two movies, of the top, top four three. movies. Yeah, two of the top, or top three. Yeah. Um, and while the reviews were positive, Entertainment Weekly's review of the film threw salt on the wound in a way and said, Alicite is the perfect fall movie. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. That came out in June, midsummer, in the midsummer. Uh, the film would finish with seventy-seven point seven million dollars at the box office, against a forty-eight million dollar budget. Which, according to Clooney in twenty twenty, the film never made a dime. Um, however, majority of the critics would praise the film, specifically the performances, the script, the editing, and Soderbergh's direction. The film was a breakout for Clooney and Soderbergh, uh, mm-hmm. the one they were looking for. Ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars, drawing comparisons to the rise of Tarantino films. Um, and the film would receive two Oscar nominations with, with uh, Scott Franks being nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay and Annie Coates um, for Best Editing. Uh, losing to Gods and Monsters and Saving Private Ryan were the two things that they lost to. Um, hmm. But the film's legacy has continued to grow as the fame of the stars in front and behind the camera have grown over these past two decades. Before passing away in 2013, it seems that Elmer Leonard said this was his favorite screen adaptation of one of his works, calling screenwriter Scott Frank after he saw the film the first time to say it was terrific. Um, hmm. And basically, yeah, Lopez becomes a star. Uh, Scott Frank, I mean, he just did he just did Queen's Gambit was the big thing he did, I think. He did Godless. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Scott Frank is the one to Queen's Gambit. I'm not I'm not insane. Yeah, he 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 wrote Logan. So he went from out of sight minority report. Uh Fly of the Phoenix was one. Marley and Me, the Wol- <laughs> the Wolverine, and then Logan. Oh, cool. And then he was director, writer, creator of Godless, and then the Queen's Gambit. So he's he's in like the Netflix world now. And and yeah, and Elmer Leonard, I think I think post Get Shorty became like a person to adapt, and probably more should be adapted by Leonard. I mean, the biggest one kind of of late is is uh, Justified. It's kind of the big mm-hmm. one. Um, yep. And I just re- they did a, a Get Shorty TV show, but he's had over like 40, 40 books or whatever, and only like less than ten have been made into something or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so kind of good for all involved. Like everyone says when, when they ask Clooney about it, they're like, oh, you're amazing. He's like, yeah, but it didn't make money. Like everyone thinks that was a big hit, but no one went to see the movie <laughs> compared to what people thought it was. So, so Thomas, what worked about this movie? Uh, like I said, I think this is when we really got the, the Clooney when he, when he found his inner strength, he found yeah. his spirit animal, whatever, whatever it is. 
yeah he tapped into he's tapped into his charm and and it is kind of you know you, you compared him to Cary grant you know there's kind of i've always you always hear like the paul newman comparison but but there is this kind of old hollywood studio star feel to him in that he does kind of have this central like you see Clooney in something, you know what you're going to get, but he's going to build off of that. He's he's not method in any way. No, Clooney's no, not no, a method no, actor. no, not at all. He's George Clooney, but then he's going to give you a good performance on top of of being George Clooney. But th- this is the first movie that that where you really feel like you get that. Yeah, and like it's and yeah, Clooney is like one as I know he's been more into directing these past this past decade really or producing, but he is someone like. I wish we got more George Clooney performances mm-hmm. this last decade. Cause like when you see him in these movies like this, you're just like, man, where is Clooney at right now? Like, <laughs> I like, I mean, granted, I feel like one day it's bound to happen where someone's just going to push a, a crap ton of money to Soderbergh and Clooney and Brad Pitt and Damon, or whoever to do another oceans movie. I feel like it's going to happen. It's me. <laughs> that's what i'm gonna do when i win the lottery it's just like i want to oceans 14 like everyone's just like because I, I and and the way content is king right now like and and we're doing this out i'm not saying we should do this fully i'm just saying that conversation's gonna happen if it hasn't happened well and i also think when we're talking kind of like awakenings i think this is when you look at the the path of soderbergh's career i think this is when he realizes like Oh, I can have fun with this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think he definitely, especially as one kind of pre, cause you know, like you said, he's kind of the father of modern indie yeah. cinema. Sex, yeah. Lies, and Videotapes was like the indie movie to launch the nineties. Yeah. Indie movie. It, it, made, it made it viable, uh, viable for like commercially in a way. Right. I exactly. think there was indie stuff beforehand with Cassavetes or John Sales, but like, I think sex, lies, and videotape, the, the VHS, the yeah. VHS indie craze. Yeah. 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 Um, but I think because of that, he kind of had this like weight on him to be this like yeah, he did. tour or whatever. And you can see that when you look at the movies before this. But yeah. this feels like the movie where he's like, oh, I can have fun with this. Yeah. And that is what has come to define his career is yeah. is not, you know, not only making fun movies, not only making serious movies, but just making whatever he is obviously personally interested in doing. Yeah. And and this this feels like the movie where that kind of dawns on him as well. So yeah. we get we get a great partnership between the two of them, but it also feels like a kind of personal awakening for both of them. Both of them, yeah. Because um, yeah, he he does right after he does this, he does the Limey, which is mm-hmm. one of his best films. Yeah. Uh, and then he does Aaron Brockovich in Traffic in two thousand, and that's where he just kind of is like, like that's where like the indie f- idea I think is like accepted. Like he, I, in 11 year time, he went from being this guy from Louisiana who made his first film that gets bought by Miramax. And then to the year 2000, he has two movies that just dominate the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Like, it's and then a, he turns around and drops. Ocean's, Ocean's 11, 2001. Yeah, yeah. 2001. Like it's insane. It's like out of sight, financially whatever but like creatively creatively a fantastic run of mm. five of five films in like four years or three years actually four, four years cast is great the style of this movie is great um writing editing the score we didn't talk about david holmes david holmes score yeah all that so did anything not work thomas um that's a great question. I mean, I, I I wouldn't say you know if if I'm 
you know, I wouldn't say this is perfect. You, you know, I, I think Ocean's Eleven is perfect. Yeah. I wouldn't say that this movie is, is perfect, but it's not, there's not anything I would point to and be like, get rid of that. Yeah. Um, I, I do wonder, here's one thing. I, I, I know it's trying to get the character of this, but like, I do wonder why we get the random dream sequence at one point mm. when Lopez mm. wakes, like, walks into Clooney or whatever. I know it's like, it, and I mean, I'm not saying you have, you can have a dream sequence and like never have to come back to another one, but I feel like it's the one thing where like, we've been playing so much with time. Yeah. I don't know. I know they're trying to like say, Oh, it's like, he's, he's, she's on his mind or, or, or he's on her mind as well as mm-hmm. she is on his mind. But it, I don't know. Just that that's bumped me this time for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah, I can see that. Um, Cause I almost love the moment more of like when she's at the hotel sitting at the, at the couch in the lobby. And that's why I see each other for the first time now. Mm-hmm. Like I think in actuality, like yeah, as that's such audience, a great moment when, and, when, yeah, when, when he waves at when her. He waves and like, but uh, visually and audience wise, like we've already seen them together once before. But it'd be mm-hmm. kind of great if we kept them separate, visually, a while longer than have that one scene. That's the only thing that really kind of bumped me this time. Yeah, and it, you know, thinking about the the structure of it overall and the pacing, it does it loses a little bit of momentum when they first get to Detroit. Yes. And, and maybe that's a little bit of like trading Miami for Detroit. So visually yeah. everything kind of gets Goes a little bit more war- somber. Yeah, and, warm to cool, basically. Yeah, and, and you're introducing Snoopy and trying to show that, you know, he's he's scary. Yeah. And establish that. But I, I it could it's it's not bad by any sense in that sequence, but it loses a bit of the snap for a little bit. Maybe it's honestly, maybe it's just kind of missing J Lo until she gets back up there. I don't disagree. Um, I don't disagree with that. But yeah. Cause she she is electric in this movie too. Like it's like we talk about how it makes Clooney, but she a good run of Selena into this to show the range of her as an actress is is mm-hmm. is fantastic. Um, anything else on that? I don't think so. All right, our universe cast. Uh, we'll go from bottom to top. Uh, for Jack Foley, mm-hmm. Elmore Leonard envisioned this, and he wrote. By the way, he wrote this book, and it came out in nineteen ninety six. So <laughs> these two characters he's saying are, are older than Clooney. Uh, yeah. Our actors are older. He envisioned Jack Nicholson. I was I was gonna say Jack Nicholson or Sean Connery as Jack Foley. <laughs> Here's Sean Connery I... doing Peter Finch's uh, thing from Network. He, <laughs> I'm out of I can't do it anymore. Um, yeah, I, I don't think Sean Connery would be able to self-deprecate enough to play jack and i know that's in the 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 source text because like anything i have read elmore leonard these the men are like like he doesn't he doesn't write like sean connery type men necessarily yeah. but jack nicholson makes a little bit of sense a younger yeah. jack i don't know i'm not saying Clooney and but like, it could be an interesting performance from jack in mm-hmm. a way um for the albert brooks role uh gary shandling and Dan, okay. and Danny DeVito were talked about for that role. I think Gary Shandling and Albert Brooks kind of op- occupy yeah. the same space. Yes, they do. Or you get Richard Kind, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the big one. Sandra Bullock almost got the part of Karen Sisko, uh, but director Steven Soderbergh was against it. He said, I spent some time with Clooney and Bullock, and they actually did have great chemistry, but it was for the wrong movie. I'm sure mm-hmm. they could do a movie together, but not an Elmore Leonard movie. Yeah, and then when they do Gravity, and then in the Ocean series, uh, Sandra Bullock plays Danny Ocean, 
uh, George Clooney's uh, sister, uh, and he's allegedly dead in Ocean's Eight, but he's not. Trust me, he's not. <laughs> they can bring him back. Um, it's Danny Ocean. Um, so moving on to film facts. Uh, as I said, Michael Keaton plays Ray Nicolette in both this movie and Jackie Brown. So mm-hmm. Miramax, Miramax Films owned the rights to the Ray Nicolette character due to the fact that Jackie Brown came at, went into production first. Quentin Tarantino felt it was imperative that Miramax not charge Universal for using the character. This move gave Universal Pictures enough leeway to use the film character, film's character free of charge from Miramax. Um, Michael Keaton's appearance, um, uh, Michael Keaton did, did the role because he thought it was the coolest idea, quote unquote, to have him reprise wow. his role. Wow, characters uh, playing, yeah. actors playing different characters across multiple movies? Or same that's, characters that's across, crazy. yeah. He goes, Keaton won audiences to believe that if Nicolette could be in two different movies from two different studios, they, quote, might see him at the Dairy Queen later like he's a real guy out there wandering around in life. Um, Soderbergh agreed once he saw Keaton's work in Tarantino's Jackie Brown, ed- and Tarantino's Jackie Brown's editing room, is what it was. Um, also, it seems both... Keaton and Samuel Jackson, who comes up at the very end of the movie in the mm-hmm. cameo, did their ca- cameos either free of charge or for scale, meaning the lowest oh, wow. lowest I could get paid on that type of production. I have heard it was free of charge. I don't know how what the like what the union rules for that is that they, they mm-hmm. do it for free, but that for free of charge. Jackson would make more sense because he's he's really so brief in that in that mm-hmm. thing. Um, but yeah. Uh, so David Holmes worked six weeks, the composer, six weeks of 12 to 17 hour days to get the soundtrack done. And this was Soderbergh and his first collaboration. And Holmes would later do several Soderbergh films, including the Ocean's Eleven series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jennifer Lopez trained for 10 weeks with the real FBI agent learning how to shoot sniper rifles or rifles for the movie is what I read. So yeah, she put she put in the work. Um, all right. Do you have any story questions? You know what happens to that? Uh, what happens to the cop driving the 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 armored van when uh, Sam Jackson and Clooney well, eventually escape? Do they break out on their way there, or do they break out when they get to the prison? Like, because like he's broken. Samuel Jackson's broken out of prison, but like, is she just like introducing him? To Samuel Jackson, so they could break out when they get to prison. Hmm. I guess so. Yeah, I guess because I took the like because they're like it's going to be a long ride or something like that. Like I took it to mean like lots of opportunity to get away, but I guess that also means it like, could be that too. Lots of time to get to know each other, yeah, so that we can be breakout buddies when yeah. we get when we get there. Yeah, it's more like I think it's like could they could they break out because like she doesn't want to be caught in the predicament of having to choose in that moment, but she's uh, she's giving him the opportunity to uh uh partner with someone who could easily break him out of jail that's what it is and that's kind of the look so but you do wonder if they do break out which will probably happen because i think samuel jackson's done like eight times or whatever as we said (laughs) yeah um does Clooney that does jack go back and find karen oh absolutely yeah she's she's waiting on him like (laughs) like like julia waiting outside the prison at, at oceans 11 yeah or Lily James and Baby Driver. That's what it is. They're just, they're just <laughs> waiting uh, for him. She she's probably with Ving Rhames in the car. At the like, if there's another scene of them breaking out, it's her and Ving Rhames in a car <laughs> breaking him out of jail. <laughs> is what it is. Also, we didn't mention her, but like Viola Davis in one scene. 
I mean, what's 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 that character do in her life? Like, <laughs> she's just there for one. Hopefully, scene. that's well, a great job. Isaiah Washington's dead, so Isaiah so Washington's at least dead. She's, she's away from him because he doesn't seem like a. She she doesn't seem to enjoy having him around. No, and well, that's her brother. That's yeah. the, that's yeah. her brother. But then, uh, um, but so is Maurice. But basically, they're all dead. So like she she's gotten so they've gotten rid of all the bad men in her life, <laughs> and one fails and one uh, fail swoop. Um, let's see what what job because I don't know if it's ever said what job did Cl- the Clooney think he was going to get. <laughs> uh general 90s uh business exec you know whatever whatever <laughs> job everyone at enron claimed that they had yeah. before the crash because it's like because because like like the question is like do you like whose side are you on are you on albert brooks's side of like hey like you like you're a bank robber what job am i going to give you <laughs> hey you know let me tell you a little story about a man who committed check fraud and ended up creating <laughs> all of the security that we now use for for check cashing in the in the american bank system don't you feel bad by what you did <laughs> i was 18 years old yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's true i mean yeah yeah it's it, is is there a world where like jack somehow like makes a deal with karen at one point and like God, I'd watch that movie in a heartbeat. Oh um, man, there there is another world where this movie makes buckets of money, and there's a sequel. Like there's there, a sequel there, where, where the I mean that's a, that's the thing too. Like the the book was only, had only been out for what two years. Two like, years. Elmore Leonard could write a sequel. Like and he did. By the way, he did write oh, he a did? sequel. So so let me get that up. I, I should have brought that up in film facts. Um, but he did write a sequel, um, because he liked Jack Foley so much. If I'm not mistaken, let me get the novel um yeah jack foley's character return and laird's 2009 film road dogs road dogs it, it continues the story of jack foley basically three i think three characters from uh his some leonard's novels basically um and i don't know if one of them is uh samuel jack's character or not basically um oh. i don't know if it is or not but it says uh they quit become road dogs inmates who watch theirs back in prison. Um, interesting. I wonder how much has changed because Ray sets Foley up with an expensive lawyer who gets the kidnapping charge of Karen Sisko dismissed, an event from out of sight, and also gets Foley's bank robbery sentence significantly reduced. As a result, Foley is soon released just a month ahead of Ray's upcoming release. Ray arranges for Foley to fly out to Venice Beach and live in one of his houses. Um, so they're let's see, uh, they're gonna try to steal millions of dollars. Is what it sounds like, as you do. Yeah. Um, no, Karen Cisco in the novel though, but there is Jack Jack Foley. But there right, could well, we, there could have been a sequel. Karen. But yeah, there could have yeah. been a sequel. Any other questions? Um, you know what happens to Steve Zahn? Does he survive the night? <laughs> yeah, in, in run it running Detroit through Detroit with no jacket, with yeah. no jacket in the cold. I don't know. That's a great question. Um, but speaking of Steve Zahn. Let's move on to awards and the and the MVP <laughs> oh, award. Presumptuous of you. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, no, he's going for MVP, of course. Um, no, it's the Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actual mid scenes that kills it. Who do you have? You know, I've got a couple options here, and then okay. uh, Albert Brooks. How many is is Albert Brooks in too much? I would. 
Mm, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think he's in too much. I think he's in at least five scenes. I think he's in for over 10 minutes uh, total. So I think he's in a little too much. Okay. Um, I mean, Keaton. I'd like to nominate Keaton. Keaton, I could see. I'm fine with Keaton. Keaton is good. I, I would nominate Sam Jackson. I would too. I would too. If, if. I think Steve Zahn's probably in too I, much. I think Steve Zahn's Albert supporting. I, I, I agree. I think no, I wasn't going to like give the rule to Albert Brooks and not give the rule to Steve Zahn. I think Steve okay. Zahn is also supporting it too. I think okay. the, the people you would say it's like, I think it's Samuel Jackson, Michael Keaton. I think Viola Davis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just listing off people that could be a possibility. I'm not saying these are my picks, but those two Keaton Jackson, Viola Davis, Catherine Keener, Nancy Allen, I might even throw in there because I think mm-hmm. she's good yep. for for what she's in there. Luis Guzman, not so sure. I'm not so sure if he does Can enough. We just talk about Luis Guzman in the '90s, though. <laughs> I'm, I'm so curious how this man got hooked up with Soderbergh and, and Anderson PTA. Yeah, yeah. What a what a what a career just to have in that in that period. Yeah, he does Out of Sight, also De Palma. He's in he's in Snake Eyes. He does Boogie Nights, Out of Sight, The Limey, Magnolia, Traffic. Wow. Punch Drunk Love. Just that, that's from just those two directors. Yep. Yeah, that's insane. Um, I vote Keaton because of the performance and also just kind of how fun it is to see yeah, Keaton, Keaton's, that character Keaton, roll over. Yeah, I like Keaton because Keaton kind of plays like, I won't say he's dumb, but he's a little just like dim. It's like, just a little like he just kind of misses the point of certain things. It's the FBI joke. like, And it takes him a while for him to realize that Dennis Farina is like, making a statement on him cheating on his mm-hmm. wife yeah and then he writes like oh yeah you're talking about that <laughs> <laughs> but he's great he's great in, yeah. in, in the in the kind of like one scene and that's it Annie potts x-factor award supporting actor actress that is the most memorable okay well obviously you uh you would like to nominate uh steve zahn <laughs> steve zahn here yes yeah i wouldn't i'd, I'd nominate steve zahn well, who who do you think's in the running? I think there's I think there's Ving four. Rames. Ving Rames, I agree, is in the running. Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle, I would agree. Dennis Farina. Yeah, uh, yeah, he he makes it in there. He might have been Beatrice Drake, but I think he fits it in there. Uh, and Albert Brooks. Yeah, I agree. I am trying to decide actually between Ving Rames and Cheadle, are kind of my mm. two people. I would probably give it to Rames. Like I said, I think I think he has an interesting this, fun character. He has a fun character. Yeah, this just feels like just a little bit. It, it has some fun to it, but it feels like a little bit too much, like just kind of a villain role when when I know Cheadle is capable of, of a lot more, more um, complex role. And no matter how you no matter how you feel about the accent, you know, Cheadle Cheadle is just a powerhouse in the Ocean's movies. He's just like a ball of energy. Bonnie, Bonnie Rubble. <laughs> my trouble i quote oceans 13 entirely more than i should just <laughs> from when he's dressed pay up me like my the, money pay me my money in cash <laughs> <laughs> oh man he is great he is great <laughs> in cash oh man oh gosh we'll do a month one time just oceans movies we have the, <laughs> we, it's the ability um yeah, no, I, I think Ving Rhames. I think Ving Rhames because it's like, I feel like this character could easily fall into another like sidekick role. Like he could fall into 
Mission Impossible, he could fall like, as um, Luther. He could easily be like another Luther. But I think he it's 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 a Soderbergh version of that, or it's a Leonard version <laughs> of that. Now Soderbergh mm-hmm. was Leonard, but it's like just again, I love the whole like I have to. It's like he'll say something like I have to go call my sister. Like it's just <laughs> like it's just like because like something's happened well, that he has to talk about and like for ask for forgiveness. Don't don't they say that that they they got caught the first time because he like confessed to a sister, to a sister yeah. before a job to save time and she just like immediately turned them in <laughs> and he still calls her i think that's hilarious time. but yeah it's 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 like he'll just be like they'll get like, when they're like leaving the steak out he goes i have to go call my sister is like what he says <laughs> like they just like they were just standing out they're just sitting outside Albert Brooks' house i got i gotta tell her about this because I, I asked forgiveness um but no yeah i think yeah i think he's great so ving rames uh, Amy Potts X Factor Award winner. All right, big one: the Gene Hackman MVP Award, person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. Mm-hmm. So three people is what's. But I think well, uh, three people could be nominees. Soderbergh. Soderbergh is one. Clooney. Clooney. Lopez. And then Lopez. That's a tough one. I think it's a tough one. I think it's really between Soderbergh and Clooney. Hmm. Because I look at like where they're at in their careers, but it is an interesting thing because I feel like both of them need the other. Is the other thing? Yeah. Well, and I feel like Clooney needs Lopez. Like I, that's fair. That's fair. You're 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 correct. Like the this is this is just one of those movies where, if that chemistry is not there, the whole movie falls apart. Yeah. But also Soderbergh's style is so important in creating that chemistry. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is one of the toughest ones we've done because I yeah would like to just make it a three-way tie, but <laughs> I think, I think Soderbergh wins out a little bit in, in the, okay. you know, especially like we were just talking about that run that he goes on. That's after fair. This That's fair. Is just insane. And like, you know, he, like you were saying, he's coming off of like, some flops and if you go back and watch them there's they're interesting but they're so obviously him like you know what's my next sundance movie what's my next sundance movie yeah and this is the one where he's like oh i'm past that i don't (laughs) don't, you know i don't need sundance's approval anymore i can go straight to theaters because at the end of the day i know it's at this point people were were downgrading tv but at the end of the day if this fails clooney's going back to er (laughs) for like another Mm -hmm. seven years or something like that until he gets another TV show, he's gonna have a career. He just he's not gonna be George Clooney, um, that we know him as yeah, today. Yeah, he, he would like just now have like an HBO show, and people would be like, "Wow, George Clooney, where's he you know, been that at?" Guy can, that guy's can really act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like who would be a similar career he would have if this movie doesn't do well? <laughs> Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 actually a good comparison. Both Batman, <laughs> both Batman, yep. who. Uh, Went away, would go away for a little bit, but like you're like, no, that guy was always good. We need more of him in movies. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good, that's a good comparison. So yeah, I'll, I'll side with you on Soderbergh because if 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 Soderbergh fails, Soderbergh's going back to like Louisiana and like making like small indie movies. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that, but hey, or actually, you know what? Soderbergh Shoot, probably shooting movies on iPhones. Actually, that's it. Yeah, Soderbergh actually wouldn't do that. He, I mean, he might because just his personality. He would probably have gone to TV earlier, maybe, and oh, like yeah. just directed TV shows. And he kind of he kind of did a little bit of TV stuff 
at that point. I mean, like, the Nick was still like it was it was you know post Breaking Bad, but it was still pre like the flood. As, it, you was, know, it was a yeah. lot of actors were flooding to TV, but like yeah, it was still kind of TV directors directing yes. movie actors. You weren't. Like, it was like him and Fincher were kind of the first to it feel and ryan johnson was kind of there early on with breaking bad but like they he wasn't the guy who spearheaded it but like mm-hmm. fincher and soderbergh are like oh i'm gonna do tv and i think too soderbergh came in a period when like tv was was hot but it was when like everyone was trying to have or right at the beginning when everyone was trying to have their show mm-hmm. like and like that was the cinemax show for some reason it was cinemax it was a showtime it was cinemax yeah, yeah. yeah. no it was cinemax it was, it was like very cinemax. hard to get i, yeah, I like, recommend it to, to get, so many people yeah. they'd be like i'm like this is the best show on television right now and they'd be like oh what's it on i'm like cinemax they're like yeah i'm not i'm not gonna watch that <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah there's a period but now it's on hbo max it is so, so i got one. and they're gonna do a season three um so get pre- be prepared i've actually never seen the nick that's one of my admi- admissions here so I got, <laughs> it's I'll, great it's I'll really good watch it um all right final questions if this film was remade today who would you cast hmm or do you want to go older no would it be would it be Cary grant Cary grant in the 1930s i'm trying to think of who's got that energy right now i think i think gosling's got it yeah yeah some somebody like ryan reynolds is like too quippy is the thing yeah like you don't you don't want to go with somebody who's like super quippy um i mean the easy choices are, are gosling and pine yeah i would say chris pine um you know i'd love to love to gl- give glenn powell a, a, a role here and there you glenn know powell. just always championing my boy glenn powell but uh i'm gonna throw on a name i'm gonna throw on a name donald glover oh absolutely i think donald glover could could play like kind of i mean or, or even like a michael b jordan to some extent like i think they could both play charismatic guys but who also could be like kind of con artist in a way yeah no donald glover's absolutely got that kind of like suave like yeah like i know exactly what i'm doing until the moment that you realize that he that <laughs> doesn't? he doesn't that he has yes. no idea what he's doing yeah yeah i think glover would be great i think it'd be great um okay so who's our who's our karen cisco jody comer not a bad pick i like that pick i'm fine with jody comer and donald glover pending pending a chemistry read pending a chemistry read that's fair and who's who's uh who's being rames just want to get that out there don who's, Cheadle. who's buddy <laughs> he actually probably will be playing that type role today <laughs> and we'll just have steve's on play steve's on again so, yeah um no no stunt casting post malone in that role <laughs> and then who and then who's maurice since we're doing this who's maurice michael pena my opinion yeah anthony mackie would be interesting in that role too um okay michael pena Actually, i haven't seen him be a bo- has he been a boxer he, he's been he's been some tough guy roles he, well he was end of watch end of watch he's a cop okay okay we'll go with that so we got jody comer donald glover Don Cheadle, um, Post Malone, <laughs> Michael Pena. Michael Pena, thank you. Interesting cast. Interesting cast. That that could be that. That's a fall movie. That's a fall movie for sure. And Soderbergh's gonna shoot it on a on an iPhone. He's gonna shoot it on an iPhone. But uh, um, uh, so yeah. And then the next question: Does this film fit with any other genres? I mean, I, I don't I don't even know what you would call like it. It is like obviously even if you 
don't know who Elmer Leonard is, you could yeah. watch like a couple Elmore Leonard adaptations and be like, this is there's something going on here. Yeah. Um. So whatever that is, that kind of like. And, and you know, I think I think the Coens have touched on it a little bit. It, it's not it's kind of capery, but it's kind of like crime. But but people are idiots. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's almost like a like a crime farce it's like you know it's 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 real crime but these people are not behaving the way that that, that real people behave necessarily yeah i mean it reminds me a little bit too to go with the soderbergh clean thing it has like some vibes of later on welcome to collinwood mm -hmm. with the that's by the russos uh with sam rockwell it's yeah. that's a little bit more kind of farcical i guess you could say more comedic um but Clooney's in it as well produced by soderbergh Isaiah Washington's in it, I believe. Um, yeah, like Cape. So that's this caper. It's kind of a heist movie. Would you call it neo noir? Um, yeah, I could see that. I mean, it's definitely kind of stylish, like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd say that. Yeah, and specifically Florida noir because the yes. first half's in Florida, yes. and it's Elmore very, Leonard it's very hot. Like, Elmore Leonard's very Florida noir esque. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. Okay, um, and then final question. Um, how does this film fit with the heist genre? Uh, it's it's definitely on the like kind of more postmodern end yeah. of it. Yeah, you know? it is. It is. It is. Um, it it is indeed about bank robbers, but it's kind of about like bank mm -hmm. robbers midlife crisis, <laughs> which is definitely not something you know they were definitely they were necessarily envisioning when they made Dog Day Afternoon or something like that um and it, and it never really takes like the crime too seriously or the yeah. effects of the crime too seriously or anything like that mm -hmm. but it's still got kind of the blueprints it kind of pays homage to yeah. to it, it it knows that we know what a heist movie is yeah and then proceeds to kind of not be a heist not movie be a heist necessarily movie. yeah it's, it's in a way it's almost an anti-heist movie like there is a heist but like it's one of the like least heisty sequences <laughs> we've seen like it's just like they knock on the door or whatever and break in and then it's like yeah where are the diamonds and they're in a fish tank like it's very mm -hmm. like but it's but it feels like to me like it feels like this is what danny ocean would be if he didn't meet rusty like he's just off doing small bank jobs but it's really good at it but he doesn't have like his team of people in a way mm -hmm. yeah be yeah, a caper it's 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 I won't say it doesn't go con artist movie. It, it dabbles in it a little bit. I think Oceans is where he really goes full con. Oceans twelve specifically, um, but yeah, it's it's crime, crime kind of world movie. So yeah, but is that it? Is that on all out of sight? I think so. That's it. So we got a lot planned for you guys this month. We got um, uh, I won't say next week yet, but we got uh, we're doing uh, the killing, the town. We're finishing the month with the filmography of the one and only Michael Mann. But Thomas, what are we doing next week? We will be doing a, a straight up heist movie. Straight up you heist know? movie. We, we, we did an anti heist movie. We'll be, <laughs> we'll be taking, doing a, a modern yeah. straight up heist movie, uh, which is inside man directed by the one and only Spike Lee mm -hmm. starring Denzel Washington, and Clive Owen, who also starred in the Nick. It's all connected. Yeah. And Jodie Foster, Jodie Foster, also Jody Foster Christopher Plummer, a uh, young Chotel Edgia four. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it'll be a good time. It's a, it's a movie I mentioned on our 200th episode that 
we've had several opportunities for me to pick it and it's always like my second choice but uh <laughs> it's a it's a movie I, I i really really enjoy so i'm excited to talk about it as of as of our recording it's currently streaming on hbo max so go and check it out if you can yeah it should be a fun fun month of heist movies of robbing and stealing and things you we should do in movies not in real life um but that's all we have for you on this episode. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so you stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you rise for your whatever platform to listen to the show on. You know, I'd hate for you to really heist this podcast <laughs> for just yourself, you know? Share it. Share the wealth and recommend it to others using a, a very generous comment on whichever platform you listen to us on. That was a terrible metaphor. I was really trying to tie it into the theme <laughs> for this month. Uh, by, by the end of the month, I'll, I'll have figured it out. Well, we just hope this podcast is still in your heart is all we hope for. Hey, there uh, we go. <laughs> you know, share, share it around and, and really promote it yourself before this podcast is out of sight. Oh, man, we're going to do the starting of the pun show is what's going to be. <laughs> All right. Uh, um, yeah. And finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, sir. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.